Welcome to Health Trust Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight healthcare leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talked to Dr. Ghazala Sharif, Corporate Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Scripps Health in San Diego, California. Dr. Sharif talks to me about resuming care, telehealth, and how supporting staff is not only the right thing to do, but is a path to a better patient experience. This is an episode about leadership in difficult times, innovation and process, and sending the right message to a community in need. Dr. Shreef, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Ghazala Sharif. I'm actually an emergency physician by training, and I am the chief medical officer for acute care and clinical excellence at Scripps Health in San Diego. And um, chief medical officer, and then I thought I saw um, Ghazala as a chief experience officer as well. Is that part of your role also? Yeah, so that was with my prior role. We got kind of incorporated in under the chief medical officer role. So the full title is chief medical officer Acute care, acute care, and then clinical excellence and experience, because everything gets rolled up under me, uh, under for quality now and patient experience, which is a much better pairing. Before we had quality in one department and patient experience in another, and as you know, you really need both of them to be combined in order to get that clinical excellence program up and running. Right, right. I understand. I see. So, how long have you been in that role, Gazala? Since January. So right before COVID. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I call I, it my, my um, hazing. <laughs> my yeah, medical exactly. hazing. <laughs> I was in my role here at Health Trust for, I guess, right around two years when COVID hit. So I think, okay. obviously, similar to you, the last five to six months has certainly changed things quite a bit. So that's probably a good place to start. So how has your role changed and been impacted by the last, you know, five to six months here? So when I first started, that was January, we had already decided to reset the direction of our quality department, uh, do things a little bit differently and focus on the several programs that the government has, value-based purchasing, hospital-acquired conditions, and the hospital readmission program. So that was already well underway. And then COVID hit, and we stood up our command center. We're now in day 182 of our corporate command center. And what we found was that uh, it was a little different leadership style from going from we still want to be collaborative, but there were day-to-day decisions that we just really need to, to make. And so based on, you know, PPE and what was available, what wasn't available, supplies, testing, you know, it was a daily up and down. And so really needed more directive leadership, I, I would say, initially uh, as people are trying to get their arms around this. We're now kind of going back into the more open, collaborative, you know, we have some time now, right, to make policy changes. So we've gone back to that way, which I think is good. But if it spikes up again, then we go back into that uh, that, that more directive role because that's what, what was needed at the time. How are you currently doing in regards to both sort of the supply side and then also, um, you know, the workforce side? Our supply chain folks, and you know this being in the industry, usually the supply chain takes a back seat and no one even really knows what the supply chain does. During this pandemic, our supply chain, pharmacy, lab, and, and frankly, our environmental services folks have have come to the surface as our true heroes, right, because they're the ones that are on mm-hmm. where all of our uh, ideas and, and things that we need to implement come from, uh, whether we have the supplies or not. And so our, our supply chain did a tremendous job 
of securing supplies, helping us with, you know, reuse guidelines and getting what they could get at that moment. And so they're still doing a very good job on handling all of that because we're not, yeah, we're just because we're stable doesn't mean we're done yet because when the next wave hits and it's all dependent on what supplies are available right now, they are the next thing you know, the feds, you know, seize a package, which happened actually to one of our local healthcare systems. Uh, they were getting a mm. supply of N95s and then their shipment was seized. So that, that can change from one day to ne- one day you can be fine and the next day you can't, you know, or a different supply becomes an issue. We just ran uh, an issue into our testing. Uh, the Hologic platform that we use, the pipette tips, were back ordered until September. So that put a damper on the number of tests that we were able to do. So it's, and then, so even though the PPE was okay, then we we're down to testing. So it's this, this daily struggle. But those are our true heroes right now. As far as the workforce, uh, we actually were a little bit worried about our ICU uh, capacity because we were getting a lot of very sick patients coming in. We were helping out El Centro as well, the Imperial uh, County, uh, because they were seeing an influx of patients, and then we were seeing a lot of border patients coming through uh, from Tijuana. And so at one point, our ICUs were 30% COVID, which is pretty high. Right now, we're in the, the 30% COVID uh, capability. So that, that did impact, and so we quickly ramped up and started hiring travelers and whatever uh, support we could get for our intensive care unit folks. So right now, we are at our license uh, capability, but uh, and that's because we're actually doing well, you know, in the community with with the COVID cases. But that that was our biggest challenge was our ICU staffing. So right now we're I hate this every time I say we're okay, something else happens. But right now our staffing is okay. What we are seeing though is that the longer this goes, the more evidence of the, the burnout that we are seeing in our staff. And so in two weeks we are kicking off a peer-to-peer counseling program, which I think is much much needed. It's a John Hopkins program. And that will be available at all of our sites because sometimes you, know, you don't necessarily need, need our employee assistance program, which is a team of five psychologists. Sometimes you really just need to talk to somebody, um, one of your peers, because you had a bad day or you're afraid to go home because you, you were exposed to a COVID patient. Now you have family at home. You just need someone to talk to. And I think that that's um, something that, that we need more of, especially the longer this goes. You know, we had uh, swine flu many years ago. It was it, it was intense at the time, but it went away. This is not going away anytime soon, and so we, we are definitely keeping an eye on the um, psychological well-being of our staff. So along those lines, um, Gazala, let's talk a little bit about the safety measures then, because I know, um, Scripps, uh, you've taken a, a proactive approach in regards to the safety measures, and I did get a chance to look at some of the um, videos that were posted online reassuring patients can you speak yeah. to that um, effort just sure. a little bit and everything that Scripps is trying to do to keep everyone safe and protected? Sure. I think before we get to the patients, so it's more important, well, not more, equally important to make sure that the staff feels protected because if they don't feel comfortable, right. that comes out in every patient encounter that we have, right, and, and staff talk. And so our very first thing that we needed to do was to make the staff feel comfortable that we were doing things not based on supplies, but based on what was the clinical evidence. And unfortunately, uh, with some of the government policies that comes out, it seems like they're making decisions about the proper PPE to wear based on supplies. And I really feel mm-hmm. strongly that that's the wrong message. In fact, Calosha just came out with a recommendation, you know, using N95s again, um, but there's no clinical evidence behind that. We have been using a very, very 
close protocol with the other regional chief medical officers. I uh, facilitate a, a meeting every week with the regional chief medical officers. And what we learned pretty early in the pandemic was that if one healthcare organization did one thing with PPE and another did another, that caused a lot of um, staff um, just d discomfort and, and loss of trust, mm -hmm. right? If they're doing one thing, we're doing another, and they all talk, but some people work at different facilities. And so that gr our group came together pretty quickly. And so we, we're sticking by with an N95 for aerosolized generating, generating procedures or intensive care unit patients because they decompensate very quickly. And then a, a surgical mask, and now we went and face shield or eye goggles for the other um, COVID patients. And so having that standard and making sure our staff knows that those are decisions were made not based on N95 supply or surgical mask supply, but based on clinical evidence was one of the first things that we did really as a region. And we didn't shift right away because the government, people and CDC was changing. You know, it seemed every couple of days a different recommendation came out. So we waited till the World Health Organization came out pretty strongly saying, okay, we feel comfortable. This really is droplet precautions because we initially started with airborne and then we changed. So we were not the first people to change to droplet precautions. We wanted to make sure we were using the clinical evidence, which we still do to this day. That took a while, as you can imagine, but and simultaneously, uh, UCSD, who's here in town, tested some of their asymptomatic staff healthcare workers uh, through uh, Rady Children's Hospital. There was a trial called the SEARCH trial, which was also open to any healthcare workers in the area who are asymptomatic, and then an another healthcare system did similar testing, and we sent our, our staff to these tests. Turned out over 10,000 asymptomatic healthcare workers were tested. This was really during the heat of the last few the months, you know, March, April, May, and there was mm -hmm. approximately a 1% positive rate, which is extremely low. You know, at that time right. we were running 6 to 7% on average. So the, the, the fact is that it proved to us that our PPE guidance was actually working and working very well. And so that gave us the confidence that we were doing the right thing for our healthcare workers. So that was really step number one is making sure that our staff felt comfortable. Otherwise, it wouldn't come to work, right? And we that was my right. number one goal as chief medical officer is to make sure my staff is protected. And that was something I will tell you gave me many, many sleepless nights uh, because I take that responsibility to heart as does our CEO, uh, Chris Van Gorder. He's, a, he's an EMT and reserve assistant yeah. sheriff. So. When we say frontline leaders, I mean, we mean that we both have people. <laughs> we do, because I'm being an ER right. I know what it's like in the trenches. And so if yeah. I don't have the trust of my people, it doesn't matter what I say. They're not going to follow, right? So that was step number one. Then uh, we did realize that uh, there's patients who did not want to come in, right? When we went down to full lockdown, uh, patients were not coming in. And I'll sh uh, share one story that, that really highlighted this for me, and that's why we started all of our other efforts. Uh, there was a roughly 54-year-old who'd been having some shortness of breath, did not want to come into the ER because he was worried about getting COVID, but finally got bad enough that he decided to come in. And then he went into full arrest and turned out that he had a huge uh, saddle uh, pulmonary embolus. Uh, they did try mm -hmm. to code him a couple hours, but he did not survive that. And that hit home because here's some, yeah. you know, you never know, you know, you can look back and go, well, maybe you should have, whatever, but still in my mind, it, you know, could we have done something differently had he, felt comfortable coming in when he first started having symptoms. Um, so that, that really struck a chord with me. And, and uh, then we started realizing that we were also decreasing volume in our cardiology clinics. Uh, visits had dropped mm -hmm. by uh, 18 to 25% in the cardiology clinic side. I'm thankful to tell you that we're between 85 and 100% back to, back to normal in the clinics now. And, but we started doing some messaging. I went on the news, actually, uh, telling our 
just our community all the steps that we were taking, not just cleaning measures, but separating out the respiratory patients from the non-respiratory. We had triage tents. Our testing was done in what we uh, call cabanas. So to, to take, you know, <laughs> surge tents sounded a little daunting. So we call them testing right. cabanas, and that kind of softened the blow that you're going to go get a COVID test. And so our patients were more likely to go through this drive. And it was a drive-through, so nobody had to get out of the car. Um, so, And then we went to pretty quickly, once testing became more expanded, to testing all of our admitted patients and all of our pre-op patients so that we would know what PPE to use for our staff. And then also we could separate those uh, patients out, right, from others if we knew that they were COVID positive. And then the EVS, Environmental Services Team, has gone in and done deep cleaning. I mean, they have their protocols that they're following uh, pretty closely as well. One of the things we, we did do pretty quickly, actually within the last uh, couple months, is put in a, a an app called Hello Patient. And that, uh, we just witnessed that recently. Uh, our CEO had actually been canceled for a case. He has a Dukorvain's uh, uh, tenosynovitis, which is just a contracture in one of his fingers, and he was scheduled for surgery, but it got canceled. Remember when we were told that we had to cancel all elective, quote, elective cases, so yeah. he, his case got canceled. Um, but he was rescheduled about a month ago, so we were able to physically walk through the process with him, you know, from scheduling all the way out to the follow-up visits. That's, and so that's the Hello Patient app, it, yeah, it is, right? So from his perspective, yeah. so I, we, we did a video on that. You may have seen that when it says, you know, he feels comfortable going through, not just because he's a CEO, but because he feels comfortable enough to schedule his case because he trusts, you know, the practices that we put in. And so when you show up, if you have this, this app, you basically tell them you're here. You don't even have to go in the waiting room, and they will tell you when it's time to come inside for your appointment. And so we went, we texted. They said, okay, come down. We're ready for you. We go down there. He was already pre-registered, but they had somebody in their face shield and mask ready in case they couldn't pre-register. And there was no waiting room time. We basically went to the hand surgery area, and, and somebody was already there waiting to greet us. So if you did have to wait in the waiting room, very clearly things were marked off. So that gave us additional comfort that they were doing the six-feet distancing. I mean, you couldn't even sit next to each other if we wanted to. We, there was a space in between, even uh, uh, Chris and I. And so that just gave us that additional uh, confidence. Anybody who came in the room had their face shields on, and so we were washing their, you know, they're washing their hands and doing every step of the way to make sure our patients felt that they really were well taken care of. And then, and then all the messaging that we did, we sent email messages out, as well as the videos. We blasted the, all the social media, saying that we are here. Please don't wait for emergency care, um, and we are taking all of these measures that I just outlined for you. Yeah, no, that's great. And we, we've also, um, just on the delayment of, of care, we've also had several reports, actually, of um, patients who have delayed needed care. And as a former cardiologist, and my wife's a practicing cardiologist, we've certainly seen cardiovascular patients that have come in um, post-event, whether it's a you know cardiac event, arrhythmia, or like you said, a pulmonary event, with unfortunately, you know, worse chronicity of disease than they would have had had they come in earlier. So that was a real problem and something that many systems have seen. So I'm glad you've pointed that out. And then I think everyone's trying to do everything they can to make patients and their families feel um, safe coming back into the hospital. And it is, you know, interesting because a lot of the things that you point out, it's probably the safest time ever to come into a hospital. Right. Yeah. Um, with all the safety measures and the precautions and the cleaning and everything that everybody's doing, um, even for elective uh, procedures, is probably safer now than it was, you know, 
a year ago. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I actually, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned your cardiologist. The other thing that we did when we when we started hearing about the decrease in visits, especially in cardiology and neuroclinics, we actually started calling back. Uh, we identified, you know, through the chart review, our high risk patients, so CHF, you know, prior yeah. MI patients, um, and we actually reached out on our own uh, with our nursing triage line to reach out and, and let them know all the things that we're doing that we really, if you don't feel comfortable coming in, let's set, set you up for a video visit. We really want to make sure that you're taken care of. And that also right. helped with re regain some of that trust, right? And so a lot of people have been converted over to video visits as well. We went from almost zero video visits a year ago to one point in the peak of, of all of this, we were at 3,000 video visits a day. Uh, which is a pretty significant ramp up, if you can imagine, you know, all the IT support that we needed to, to get that up and running, and our team pivoted pretty quickly to do that. So um, those, those are additional things that we were able to put into play. Yeah, so let's talk about that just a little bit, because um, okay. I do think and I, and I hope, you know, virtual healthcare, telehealth, telemedicine, whatever, um, you know, accurate or whatever, I guess, name people want to call it, um, that it is here to stay, and I hope that it is. Um, yeah, and so can you talk a little bit, I think Scripps Health's website, if I recall correctly, had a virtual care link. And can you just talk a little bit about what that is? And it sounds like it's similar to what you just mentioned. Yeah, and the, you, so there's a couple ways to access that. Yeah, virtual care, and it's also an app. If you have the MyScripts app, you can actually schedule your own video visit. Uh, pretty quickly, and there's also what we call, um, you know, e-visit, which basically is what they call asynchronous, which means you just put in what your complaints are, right? And, and there's some specific ones, you know, urinary tract infection symptoms, things like that, that you put in your symptoms, and then somebody will get back to you. Um, that's one one way that some of our patients are getting treated, and we had that up and running before. But the video visits is is, is definitely something that we got up and running through through this uh, COVID pandemic. And so, yeah, you can schedule a video visit. Uh, you can do that on your app as well. And, and this is uh, actually available to new patients as well, which is something that we hadn't done before. So, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of IS work that has to be involved, as you can imagine. If you're an existing patient, that's great. But if you're not one, you know, just having how do you register, how do you get them through? And what we did find initially with that was some of that uh, some of our older patients were having some difficulty because you know some of them are very savvy and I get that, but there are some that needed a little extra extra help. And so we put in a new new program just actually about a month or so ago where our medical assistant actually helps people sign in because it's a little daunting. You know, you've done a video visit before yeah. and then you had to push all these buttons and you know, and so the, the the medical assistant helps the patient sign on first of all, and then stays with the patient when the doctor comes in the room, you know, to do the virtual visit just in case there's any technical difficulties. And then there's often a better, you know, warmer handoff just, you know, from having the MA, then you're sitting there waiting, then the doctor walks in, they seem to be a little more of a disconnect. And so providing that that transition has been working really well as well. So we're kind of learning as we go as some of the health, other healthcare systems are going as well and how do we help our people navigate better. And then we can turn those video visits into a in-person visit. Uh, so as, as a cardiologist, you'll know if there's some the red flag that comes up that says, I really need you to come in, then you can, you can do that. But at least getting them to make a video visit was that first step. Right, right. Yeah, no, we've seen that really, um, like I said, take off across the, the healthcare systems. Yeah. And um, just like you mentioned with the, with the Hello Patient app, which is really interesting, some workflow efficiency pieces have been um, sort of, you know, forced upon us in a lot of ways. Yeah. And some of those things I think will probably 
sustain, you know, beyond whenever COVID ends. But um, that Hello Patient app was really interesting too. So that app and what we're talking about in regards to video visits, do you feel like that's um, workflow efficiency processes that will remain? Yeah, and I'm really glad you asked that question. You know, what we found interestingly was, especially on the outpatient side, that our patient experience scores actually skyrocketed during <laughs> our, the peak of the pandemic, which is opposite of what you would think, right? You would think that, right, you know, right. wow, people are going to be unhappy, they can't get in. And then I thought, is it because we have some grumpy barriers? You know, sometimes are, are the people that are the very first usual access point you know, what service are we not providing at that point where people are so much happier when they can do it themselves? And I thought, well, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. It's really more about the convenience, and people have been wanting this for a very long time, and we just, we were slow getting it, right? And so I would, right. we are still, there are some still some patients now. We're down about 1,300, 1,400 video visits a day from that 3,000 I told you about, and that's because there are still some people that want to come in. But I do hope that we you know, keep keep going forward with where we are right now. But one of the things that is going to be important, though, is that the government reimburses appropriately. You know, we, doctors, we don't like talking about money, but I think it's important. It's, it's something that the patients want. Um, you know, right. they did give us that, that, you know, that leeway, you know, to be able to charge appropriately. But, you know, that, that's going to be an important part of the legislation, I think, as well, to make sure that, you know, the reimbursement goes hand in hand with the, the convenience. Otherwise, you know, why, it causes a, basically a disincentive for physicians to want to do more video visits if you're, you know, you're spending the same amount of time sometimes, right, on these, on these videos. So uh, that I know that lots of work is being done on that front as well. I will tell you, I've talked to different physicians. Some love the video visit. They're, you know, we've had a couple who could never make it to the clinic in time, and they love it because they're always on time now, right? <laughs> it's true. Right. They were, they were, I mean, I get complaints about, oh, they never show up and blah, blah, blah. And then I had one um, physician who's actually one of our top performance performers. He's in the 90-some percentile on patient experience. So I asked him how he felt about it. He said, you know, I actually – feel more tired after these video visits than I do in person. And I asked him to tell me about that, and he said, this is why, because when I'm on video, I am literally on video the entire time. When I'm in the room, I can get on the computer, I can go out of the room, I can come back in the room. It's not as intense. Yeah. And so he feels yeah. like he is on way more now, which actually makes sense to why the patient experience scores are there for higher, because you really are right there, you know, face-to-face -face more than we ever were before because everybody's typing on their computer, right? Yeah, so I, no, I, I totally, that. yeah, I totally agree. And we've even interestingly within our own enterprise here on all the Zoom meetings, um, yeah. it's similar. And that's a good way of, of looking at it. Everyone just feels like they're, you know, they're on display and it's a show yeah. and you've got to be on the entire time and, you know, never, never look away or take a break. And so there is an intensity component to it. But um, no, I, I agree. I hope that it's something that we maintain and to your point that gets appropriately reimbursed so that we can, you know, continue that moving forward because it's just, and we've heard from a lot of the rural facilities as well, that it's just the connectivity that they've had in spotty ways in the past, but um, now feel like it's a little bit more, you know, embedded in the day-to-day -day workflows. And they're just hoping that it's something that can, you know, be, be sustained moving forward. So, um, Gazala, as we move into fall and winter, and this is something that um, obviously we hear a lot about, and I'm sure you are as well, and people mm -hmm. concerned about, is there going to be, you know, another wave of COVID? How is this going to be impacted by the flu season? 
Um, as you look forward to, you know, fall and winter, you know, what actions are you taking there at Scripps to try to proactively address that? Yeah, so we actually are working on our flu clinics right now. It's actually causing a, a little bit of, uh, you know, a thought that we have to put into it. Before, you would have, we would have our whole auditorium, right, and we'd have hundreds, literally people just traipsing through all day long. Now with the social distancing and things like that, or we're actually calling it physical distancing because that's a better reminder than social because I think people get confused on what that means. You know, physical is you have to be part, is how do we do this differently? So for some of our clinics, we're actually going to be doing drive-through just like we do with the drive-through testing cabanas for COVID, we're actually going to be doing drive-through yeah. flu, flu, flu clinics. Um, and then, but I actually feel, and maybe I'm jinxing ourselves here, that we're probably going to have a better flu season because we still have the mask mandate in place. You know, I hope that the, the county and the state don't lighten things up too much. We, we did do that initially here in San Diego. The healthcare organizations, you know, the CEOs meet actually uh, as well as the chief medical officers, and, and they, they really wanted to go a little slower on opening that the county opened up, including the bars and things like that. And sure enough, we got a spike. And so they closed right. back down again, you know, in, in house dining or in room, whatever it's called, the, in restaurant dining and closed back the bars again. And so now we're actually level. And so I, I do hope that as we start getting better, that we don't rush again to reopen everything. You know, I understand there's a, there's a, it has to be a balance, right, between the economy and, and health. But we learned our lesson pretty quickly. We're going too fast. So I, I do think that if we keep, keep up the mask, rules that we might actually have a better flu season. That being said, you know, we are prepared for a spike any any time. And so one of the things we did with our supply chain, and we, I, I really do believe we have one of the best supply chain teams around, we actually have in reserve before we opened up, and we're actually not calling it, um, you, you mentioned elective um, surgeries, we're really not even calling anything elective anymore because we first started with what we called, you know, the, the essential cases, right? And everybody did that when mm -hmm. we were told to shut down electives, everybody, all you, all you could do was your, quote, essential cases, right? Those are the ones that the, the emergency cases. And then as we started getting our hands around this, we went to what we called time critical, which meant we could only schedule two weeks out. And I'm telling you a little bit about our phase return of services, but um, so two weeks out. So what, what needed, what absolutely needed to get done these next two weeks? Because we we're hearing stories of patients who had waited so long for procedures that they were, as you mentioned earlier, were getting sicker. Uh, so right. a simple example is our cataract patients who, you know, they've been put on hold for three, four months. Heartbreaking stories, 80-some-year-old, you know, vision got getting worse, can't drive now. He's the sole driver in the household to get groceries. And, you know, stories like that yeah, made us feel like we really need to, right? I mean, and he can't pass his DMV test. And, you know, th those got to me as well. And so, we were, you know, what has to get done in these next two weeks because we're only booking two weeks out. So then we went through that phase because we had a huge backup, and then we moved to what we're, we're still in what we call specialty cases, which are the, you know, the colonoscopies and things like, you know, hand surgeries and things like that. Um, when we say elective, you really, you, I think I think it's a misnomer. You know, we think people think of elective, the cataract falls under elective surgeries, right? The yeah. colonoscopy yeah. falls under elective. It's not elective. I mean, if we miss a cancer because we haven't done a colon screening or, you know, we shut down the mammogram screenings as well during this acute phase, you know, those are big things. Those aren't elective. Right. And so we really right. think we need to change our terminology, you know, as a healthcare organization, you know, across the country anyway, so that people don't, you know, shut us down again. I, I get it. Elective is elective, but we're really not in that phase at all. And so, yeah. um, so, our, so our supply chain, what we did was when we started expanding, we kept 30% above, you know, the current volume. So if we were seeing 100, you know, um, COVID patients, 
we kept in reserve another 30% of supplies, you know, PPE, masks, whatever we were using, gowns, things like that, that was in our reserve ready for a surge. And then whatever was left over was the number of cases uh, that everybody else could do, and that was in conjunction with the number of tests that were allocated to them. So it was a very complex formula, but here's the number of tests you can do by site, here is, and, and, here, and this matches with the PPE that's available, and then you can fit in whatever cases in that category. And that worked very, very well to the point now where we're, you know, we've expanded and we're actually almost up to, we are at 100% of OR uh, pre-COVID volume now based um, on that. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the two things, the point you raised around, you know, the elective word, and I guess it's been, you know, historically used synonymously with outpatient or at least things that, yep. you know, don't stay in the hospital overnight, but you're probably right, probably needs to have a little bit more precision around it. And then the flu conversation is interesting because this is something that, you know, we follow um, pretty carefully. And you're right. I mean, the countries in the Southern Hemisphere that typically get hit right about now um, are reporting much lower numbers of flu compared to previous years, probably because of the masking and the travel restrictions, the, you know, the distancing. So, um, yeah, we're hoping the same that is uh, here in, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, as long as they keep um, all these rules in place that we're hoping that um, the flu season is not as heavy as, as it's been in the last couple of years. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens comes you know, September, October, November. Um, and then obviously, I'm sure you're doing the same. We're trying to encourage, you know, everybody to get their flu vaccine as much as possible, realizing that only about 40% of the people in the country get a flu vaccine. Um, so that's a little bit of a challenge as well. Yeah, and we're, the other thing is the testing. Uh, go, we're, we're looking at platforms that can do both COVID yeah. and the flu test simultaneously yeah. because, you know, remember, tips are, you know, you're in this business, but the supplies have always been an issue. Reagents, tips, you know, the swabs, up and down with that as well. So it would be, it would be we're working with one company right now that can do the same test, on, you know, on one, one swab. So one swab, the, right. Yeah, that will be the next uh, push on the supply chain, right, because everybody's yeah. going to want that yeah. platform. Yeah, the combined testing for sure. Yeah. Well, um, Gazelle, I really appreciate your your time, you know, this afternoon and and cover all this uh, all this material with us. It's always really interesting to learn from um, the different health systems that we speak to. There are certainly some common threads, but then obviously some unique um, approaches, and we always end up learning something new. Any other um, parting thoughts before we conclude? I think one of the things on your, I know you're probably doing this already, on your list was uh, vaccines. You know, we do the uh, yeah. wishful thinking that there will be one, hopefully at least for healthcare workers, by the end of the year. The question is going to be, you know, who's going to want to be sort of first in line, right, uh, because it's a right. new vaccine. So uh, but we'll, we'll just have to see how, how that goes. Yeah, we keep um, pretty close tabs on that. And, you know, Moderna, which is the messenger RNA vaccine, is the one that's out. Yeah in front, but unfortunately in their right. phase three trial, there are only about 10% um, enrollment. So, and, you know, hopefully they can increase that over the rest of the, of the year. But I think one of the things that people underestimate is the challenge it is to enroll, you know, 30,000 patients into a vaccine right. trial. So um, right. I think it's probably going to be more first quarter of next year, but um, yeah, we'll keep our, certainly keep our fingers crossed in that regard. And then obviously some of the other 
you know, monoclonal antibodies and treatments like that that are coming down the pike. And so hopefully uh, we'll have a little bit of some bridge therapies there until we ultimately end up with a vaccine. Well, um, Dezala, thank you again. It was great speaking with you. Really appreciate your time here on our Candid Conversations podcast. And uh, thank, thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit education.healthtrustpg.com to find additional resources for clinicians and your healthcare leaders.